Well, I hope you're coming to God's word this morning expecting to see the love and goodness and care that our Lord has for us because that is exactly what we see. Join me in John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And we are looking at verses 12 through 15. John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. This morning, as Jesus is continuing his final farewell to his apostles, and as we move into verse 12, we're moving now from Jesus' promise that the Holy Spirit would use the apostles' testimony to convict the world. That's verse 8. Their testimony to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now Jesus has promised in verses 12 through 15 that the Spirit would use these men to deliver supernatural revelation after Jesus leaves them. That's the transition. From what the Spirit will do to the unbeliever, the Spirit's work of conviction regeneration in verses 5 through 11. We saw that last week. To now what the Spirit will do with these apostles for the believers who follow them. We're focusing now specifically on the Spirit's work of inspiration, supernatural guidance, so that the New Testament scriptures would be written. It's a great text. Let's read it starting in verse 12. And Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. This is an amazing promise. It's another reason why Jesus said back in verse 7, it is to the apostles' advantage that Jesus ascends to his Father. Now, the key phrase, verse, is verse 13. Notice it again. He, referring to the Spirit, will guide. Notice there's a future tense here. So what the Spirit will do only after Jesus ascends, he will guide you, speaking specifically to the apostles. He will guide you into all the truth. This will be the Spirit's role for these men. He will be their guide. He will lead them into the sphere of his revelatory work. Continue verse 13. He will take divine truth from the Father. He will open it up to the minds of these men. That's continuing verse 13. The Spirit will not speak on his own initiative, But whatever he hears from the Father, he will speak. But then notice verse 14, the Spirit will also take the truth about Jesus from Jesus. He will take of mine 
and will disclose it to you. He'll make sense of it. The Spirit will allow these men to interpret the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus rightly. And even further, the Spirit will also give these men access into further truth. Finish verse 13, the Spirit will disclose what is to come. It's a monumental promise here. Jesus is promising something similar to what the Spirit did with the prophets in the Old Testament. The prophets who brought God's word to God's people. Think of 2 Samuel 23. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. The Spirit of God gave me revelation. When I spoke, the Spirit spoke in his word. The Spirit's word was on my tongue. This is the Spirit giving Old Testament prophets utterances, special words and insight. And so that when they spoke, God spoke. That's why Peter in Acts chapter 1 says the Scripture had to be fulfilled, the Scripture which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. And then Peter quotes Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. That is to say this, when David wrote those Psalms, he wrote the very words of God superintended by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was involved. So it took place in the Old Testament, but now... As part of Jesus' final farewell, he places these apostles into the same line as the prophets of old. And amazingly, he promises them that same spirit speaking, spirit writing work of revelation, of inspiration. Now, I want to contrast two promises that Jesus makes in this final Farewell, because this is the second time Jesus has promised these men revelation from the Holy Spirit. The first text is back in John 14. Turn there for a moment. John 14, 26. It's the first time Jesus promised the work of inspiration. Where we see in verse 26 that Jesus says, The helper, the Holy Spirit, Whom the Father will send in my name, notice now, the Spirit will teach these men all things. The question is how? How will the Spirit do this? What are these all things? Answer, continue. The Spirit will bring to their remembrance all that I said to you. So the main promise In chapter 14 here is that the Spirit would grant these men a special memory, a divinely assisted mind to recall, to think back, to recall the life and ministry of Jesus, to recall his words, his teaching, his message. This is the promise that these men would be used to write the story of Jesus, the four Gospels. Matthew writes Matthew, John writes John, Mark writes under the guidance of Peter. That's the promise. 
And we saw examples of this promise being fulfilled here in this book. Think of John chapter two, John two. John records Jesus cleansing the temple. And John writes this, when he was raised from the dead, when he ascends to his father, after he sends the spirits, notice his disciples, what? Remembered, it's fulfillment of John 14. His disciples remembered, same word, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So the question is, how did John remember John chapter two? How did John record that event accurately? How did he interpret it rightly? Answer, it was through the work of the Holy Spirit. It was in fulfillment of Jesus' promise that the Spirit would cause a memory, bring to remembrance Jesus' life and ministry. That's how John wrote his gospel, fulfillment of John 14. We see the same thing take place in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He begins his final week of his life. But John makes clear that this week begins with these words. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. They did not understand the significance of Jesus' entry. But when Jesus was glorified, after he ascended, after he sent his spirits, then they what? Remembered, then they recalled, same word again. They remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Again, why did John record Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem? Why? How? Does John remember this event perfectly? Answer, because the Spirit gave remembrance, insight, Spirit gave revelation. Again, this is in fulfillment of John chapter 14. The Spirit will bring remembrance to all that Jesus said and did. And the placement of those two examples in this gospel is key. The placement is key. As John writes of Jesus' first Passover, he sees the beginning of his gospel as being inspired by the Spirit, the beginning of his gospel. And then as he writes of the final Passover, John sees the ending of his gospel as being given by the Holy Spirit. Each book ends Jesus' ministry. Each is the fulfillment of John 14, 26. The Spirit will bring to mind the memory, remembrance of Jesus' life. So that's the first promise that Jesus makes. Coming revelation. You will write the gospels. You'll remember my life and ministry. Well, now turning the page to chapter 16. And now with this promise of the Spirit's revealing work, Jesus adds something. Because the promise here is not that the apostles would remember things that Jesus already said and did. No, the promise here is that the Spirit would reveal new things to the apostles. Again, notice the end of verse 13. He will disclose to you what is to come. 
So this now is a promise for the rest of the New Testament to be written. This is a promise of revelation that will expand on the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And this will be revelation that will now include the building of Christ's church. It will include the epistles being written. It will include even his future return. It will include the book of Revelation that ends with the new heavens and the new earth. That's the promise here. That's the addition here. Again, in John 14, 26, you'll write the gospels. Here in John 16, you'll write the rest of the New Testament. In the words of one author, he writes this, Jesus here paves the way for the most significant work in which the apostles would be involved the completion of God's written revelation. They would be the instruments that God would use to complete the scriptures and in so doing, along with the New Testament prophets would become the foundation of the New Testament church. Jesus is preparing these men for the unique role they would play in the revelation of truth for all time in the Bible. A role that they could only fulfill after the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Again, this is a monumental promise. This is a gift to us from God through these men. So the way I wanna work through these verses is by looking at different descriptions of the New Testament we hold in our hands this morning. Descriptions of the Father and Son's gift through the Spirit to his people. This is a gift. This is a supernatural gift. And there's seven qualities we can draw from Jesus' promise here, seven qualities of this New Testament. Let's begin with quality number one. Quality number one, the New Testament is progressive revelation. The New Testament is progressive revelation. Start in verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, Jesus says. At this point, it was far more that Jesus needed to tell his apostles, but he couldn't do that. He couldn't do that for a variety of reasons. For one, three and a half years is not long enough to reveal everything that needs to be said. But more importantly here, the second reason is because the apostles did not have the capacity this moment to understand and grasp what Jesus had to say. That's what the end of verse 12 says. But I do not say these things. Why? Because you cannot bear. You cannot carry them. You're not strong enough. You're not mature enough right now to shoulder the weight of what you will hear later. Remember verse six, sorrow has filled their heart. Remember John 14, one, their heart was troubled. They're clouded by grief. They're churning on the inside with anxiety and fear. Remember what we've seen throughout these last few chapters, the apostles are utterly confused at what is in store for Jesus. 
cannot understand it fully, what he's going to do. They don't understand fully his coming cross. They do not grasp what he means by resurrection. They're wondering why is Jesus not taking Rome by force? Why is he not setting up his messianic kingdom now? Before more revelation was going to be given to them, they needed to witness Jesus' crucifixion play out exactly as the scriptures predicted. They needed to be commissioned by the resurrected Jesus. They needed to see him. And they needed to be given the spirit to indwell them, to open up their minds so that they could make sense of all of this. This is an example of the compassion Jesus has for his people. He does not give his people more than they can bear through his spirit. And this right here is an example of what we call progressive revelation. It's the fact that God does not reveal all of his truth at once to his people. No, he reveals his word over time. And he reveals his word when his people are ready to receive it and prepare to write it. It's progressive revelation. There's a second quality we see here of the New Testament. Quality number two, the New Testament is spirit-inspired revelation. The New Testament is spirit-inspired revelation. The word inspired means breathed out. We see this in verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will, and now notice the actions that follow here, the actions the spirit will take, he will guide, he will speak, and he will disclose each action a verb of communication. The spirit of truth is the source of our New Testament. Now take each of these promised actions from the Spirit. First of all, he will guide. He will lead the apostles into unknown territory. That's the idea. He will reveal new truth to them. Now as you follow the New Testament, you see the Apostle Paul calling these new truths mysteries. Mysteries, referring to things that were not revealed in the Old Testament, but now revealed in the New Testament. These are the mysteries. Think of Colossians chapter one. The mystery, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but it has now been manifested, now been revealed to his saints, revealed by the Holy Spirit. And what is this mystery? Here it is, which is, Christ in you. So that was unrevealed in the Old Testament that the Messiah through his spirit would indwell us. But Paul says now that has been revealed, made known by the spirit. Think of Ephesians chapter three. By revelation, notice that by revelation, it was made known to me the mystery, Paul says. 
The mystery of Christ, it's unrevealed in the Old Testament, made now clear in the New. Verse five says this ministry, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. This is new revelation, new territory. The spirit is leading. Paul says this was revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, by the spirit. What's the mystery? It is specifically verse six that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is unheard of in the Old Testament. But it's new, it's revealed. Spirit guides the authors into that truth. Think of the mystery of Christ's rapture of his church. 1 Corinthians 15, behold, I tell you a mystery. And revealed in the old, made now clear in the new. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Oh, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. It's a mystery that God's people might not see death. I'm praying for that to happen right now, right now. The mystery that we will be taken alive to meet our Savior in the air. This is just a few examples of the mysteries Jesus says will be revealed by the Spirit. He'll guide the authors into this truth. Notice the next action the Spirit will take. Verse 13 again, he will speak. He will guide, but he will also Speak. He will bring God's word to God's people. And just think of that Old Testament refrain the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. Well, that is what these people now, the apostles, those even under the apostles, that is what they will experience that Jesus promises here. The word of the Lord will indeed come to them through the Spirit. Notice the next action the Spirit would take. He will disclose. He will disclose what is to come. And that word disclose here, key word, the Spirit will do what only Yahweh God does in the Old Testament. The Spirit will tell the future with perfect accuracy. He will disclose what no idol, what no mere man can disclose. Think of Isaiah chapter 44. This is where God issues a challenge to all idols, false gods. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, the Lord of hosts, the question is this, who is like me? Who is like me? What sets God apart from every false god? It says, God, apart from every creature, here's the answer. It is his ability to declare, his ability to disclose what is to come. Which is why the Lord issues this challenge. Let them, the idols, let them declare the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. They can't do it. Only I can. 
Well, amazingly now in John 16, Jesus says that is what the Spirit will do. He will disclose what is to come. That is what the Spirit will do through these men. Something fulfilled not only throughout the New Testament epistles, but also in the book that ends the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Again, that ends with the new heavens and the new earth. What is to come? So the New Testament here is spirit-inspired revelation. It's his leading. It's his speaking. This is his disclosing. And yet notice a third quality now. A third quality of the New Testament Jesus adds here. Though the New Testament is the work of the Holy Spirit, notice this, the Holy Spirit will not be alone in this work. The Spirit will not be alone in this work. This is quality number three. The New Testament possesses a Trinitarian harmony. A Trinitarian harmony. Notice the middle of verse 13. The Spirit will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, this is inter-Trinitarian communication between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whatever he hears in this communication, that he will speak. So the Spirit is dependent upon the other two persons of the Trinity for the revelation that he gives. Just as Jesus was dependent upon the Father for his revelation throughout his incarnation, so too the Spirit is dependent upon the Father and Son for what he inspires, what he breathes out. And notice here, whatever he hears, again, between Father and Son, that is what he will speak. There is no division within the Trinity when it comes to the Scriptures. There's no division And thus, the scriptures carry with themselves the same unity, the same harmony, authority, perfection, weight, words of triune God himself. Let that sink in. That is the book that we have been given. One pastor put it this way. It's so true. To reject scripture is to reject the Trinity. To reject scripture is to reject the Trinity. The New Testament is the Trinity's gift to us. And yet there's a paradox now. This leads into a fourth quality, a paradox that Jesus adds in the middle of verse 13. Here's quality number four. The New Testament will be penned by human authors. This is the Trinity's gift, but indeed, this will be penned by human authors. That's the middle of verse 13. The spirit of truth, he will guide you. He will guide you, not speaking to us. This is now speaking to these apostles. John, you will write first, second, third John in Revelation. Peter, you will write first and second Peter. Ultimately, this includes those who write under 
the apostles' guidance and leadership. But he, the Spirit, will guide you into all the truth. I'm going to give you a theological phrase to use at lunch this afternoon. Theological phrase. This is called divine causality. Divine causality. Simply means this. The Spirit moved, the humans wrote. Divine causality. The Spirit moved, the humans write. Spirit is the ultimate cause of the Scriptures. Scripture is the Spirit's words. Scriptures are the words the Spirit heard from the Father and the Son. And yet these words are transmitted through, written by men. This is why Peter, and I think there's a connection here to the promise that Jesus gives, but this is why Peter puts it this way. He writes this, for no prophecy, it's referring to the scriptures, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. That is to say that man is not the ultimate cause of the scriptures. How did it come about? Answer, it's by men moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. The word moved here, it means to be carried along. It's the same word used in Acts 27, referring to a ship being carried along by the wind in the ship's sail. One commentator wrote this. The prophets raised their sails, so to speak. So they're obedient, they're receptive. And the Holy Spirit filled them and carried their craft along in the direction he wished, the direction the Spirit wished. The spirit moves, humans right. And that whole carried along, that's a visible picture again of how the spirit guides the human writers in the words of Jesus to pen all the truth, all the truth. But note, the human authors were not copyists, they were not robots. They were not in some state of ecstasy, not knowing what they were writing. No, they were living men consciously involved using their individual personalities, their training, their backgrounds, their eyewitness accounts, their memories to record God's word. And yet every time the quill touched the parchment, the Holy Spirit guided each syllable, each word, each phrase, each sentence so that what was written were the very words of God. I'm going to give you another theological phrase. You can use this over dinner tonight. <laughs> Verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. Let's make it simple. Plenary means every. Verbal means word. Inspiration is breathed out. Every word is breathed out by God. It's verbal plenary inspiration. I love the illustration R.C. Sproul used to describe this process. I love it because I think I can relate to it thinking back to my childhood days. Sproul used to ask those who he is teaching to think back to their childhood, think back to the time when there's no responsibilities, 
This is for all those here who know what trapper keepers are, okay? And I can't believe I'm in that category, but that's okay. No responsibilities or no phones. Well, there are phones, but you know, not, not these phones. It's when you would play outside, play outside. And I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that when some of us played outside, we used to play with popsicle sticks. Remember that? Popsicle sticks. We'd make our own boat out of those popsicle sticks. We'd put it in a, in a river or runoff after a rainstorm. Today, kids have video games. My parents gave me popsicle sticks. I still turned out okay. Think about what the popsicle stick would do. It would meander down the stream. It would go exactly where it wanted to go. It would follow the currents of whatever water it was in. It'd sometimes spin because the water turned, whatever it is. Finally, it reaches its destination. Well, Sproul would, Sproul would say that's a picture of the Spirit using human authors to write the scriptures. They were specially chosen popsicle sticks. Right? They went exactly where they wanted to go. But they were being carried along by the stream. They were being carried along, going exactly where the Holy Spirit guided them. And thus, the writers wrote exactly, precisely what the Spirit heard from the Father and the Son. Again, this is divine causality. This is verbal plenary inspiration. The spirit is the ultimate cause of the scriptures while man is the spirit's instrument for putting his words onto the written page. These human authors were guided by the Holy Spirit. Leads into a fifth quality that Jesus now refers to here, quality number five. This now comes to some application. Quality number five, the New Testament is perfect in its writings. The New Testament is perfect in its writings. So that is to say, just like the Old Testament, Jesus promises that the New Testament, the coming New Testament, will contain no errors, no mistakes, no inaccuracies. I'll say that again, no errors, no mistakes, no inaccuracies. Now, how do we know this? Notice verse 13 again, because the ultimate cause of the scriptures, according to Jesus, is the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. It's the same title Jesus gave to the spirit back in chapter 14. The helper, that is the spirit of truth. Truth. You see this at the end of chapter 15, verse 26. The helper, that is the spirit of truth. And now here for a third time, who is the Holy Spirit? He is the spirit of truth. There's no errors. There's no inaccuracies. Look over to chapter 17 for a moment. 17, 17. How can Jesus say this? How can he say, your word is truth? How can he say that? Answer, because the spirit who breathed out is the spirit of truth. So the nature of the spirit demands the scripture's perfection. Scripture's a spirit guided, spirit breathed, 
words. And since the Spirit cannot lie, the Spirit cannot err, then the Scriptures carry with it the same truthfulness as the Spirit of truth. And quite frankly, folks, this is where the Scriptures are being attacked today. Please know that. This is where the Scriptures are being attacked today from those who call themselves evangelicals. Pastors at well-known churches in America Some of the largest churches in America, they question the inerrancy of God's word. There are pastors in our town that question the inerrancy of God's word. There are Christian school leaders in our town that question the inerrancy of God's word. Nothing to see here. I want you to listen to how one theologian puts it. It is so clear So clear, he writes this. To assume that the spirit could breathe forth a word that contained mistakes is to say, in effect, that God himself can make mistakes. Anyone wanna say that? Men may talk all they wish about the unimportance and irrelevance of minor errors in chronology and history. Again, nothing to see here. The real truth of the matter is that if God has blundered so badly on those matters in which we can check him, how do we know that he has not also blundered just as badly in speaking to us of himself? God has lied to us at one point. By what conceivable standard may we say that he has not lied to us at others? If the truth in what we are sometimes, or what sometimes are called minor matters is of no importance to him, how do we know that he has any regard for the truth in so-called major concerns? If he is the God of truth, He has certainly taken a strange way of it. And though today, many will deny scripture's inerrancy, understand this, inerrancy has always been the church's testimony. It's always been the church's testimony. Augustine writes this, the scriptures have never erred, the scriptures cannot err. That's inerrancy. Luther, we must cling to the scriptures as the perfectly clear, certain, sure words of God, which can never, does it say ever? I don't know what it says, never, good. It's in my notes, it says ever. That's an error. Only God's word (laughs) is an errant that can never deceive us or allow us to err. Calvin writes this, this is multiple places. Scripture is the unerring standard the pure word of God, free from every stain or defect, the inerring certainty. Again, why? Why is this the case? How can this be the case? It goes back to verse 13, Jesus' promise. It's because the scriptures will be breathed out by who? The spirit of truth. It's perfect. Perfect from the spirit himself. Here's quality number six. Quality number six. The New Testament is Christ-centered in its message. 
The New Testament is Christ-centered in its message. Again, we will draw application for what we've seen leading up to this point. Notice verse 14, the Spirit's overarching goal in breathing out these scriptures is to glorify Christ. That's his overarching goal. Verse 14, he will glorify me, Jesus says. He will glorify me. The goal of the Spirit inspiring the New Testament is to magnify the Son. That's the goal. The New Testament is not a man-centered book. It is not primarily about us. No, the New Testament is about Christ's preeminence, Christ's glory, his reputation, his majesty. Well, that's exactly what we see. When we look through the New Testament, we see the glory of Christ's deity. The glory of Christ's deity, Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. When you see Christ, you see God. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him. You see the glory of Christ's preeminence over his church. He is the head of the body, the church, so that he himself will come to have first place in his church, in his people's lives, will come to have first place in everything. That's preeminence. See the glory of Christ's redemptive work. His redemption, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, you are dead in your sin. Here's what Christ does, what only Christ can do. He has now reconciled you and he will present you holy and blameless in the future. We see the glory of Christ's victory over sin and Satan. When you are dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together. How? He's forgiven us all our transgressions. How? Because he died on the cross canceling out the certificate of debt against us. It was hostile to us. And when he did that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, victory over sin and Satan. And then we see the glory of his ascension. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of his father. The glory of his ascension, the right hand of power. And that's just one book of the 27 in the New Testament. That's the book of Colossians, one book. You can add more of Christ's glory, the glory of Christ's intercession, Hebrews 7, the glory of Christ's unfailing love, Romans 8, the glory of Christ's sanctification of the believer, Galatians 2, the glory of Christ's return, Revelation 19, the glory of Christ's judgment, Revelation 20, on and on it can go. The New Testament is about the glory of Christ. So here now is application. Beware of any church, any preacher, any teacher that turns the Bible into a man-centered book. Beware of any church, 
that devalues the majesty of Christ for something or someone else. Beware of any church that exalts the spirit to the detriment of Christ. It's all about the spirit. That's not the spirit's purpose. He will glorify me. Beware of any religion that lessens the sufficiency of Christ's work. Why beware? Because none of those things would be what the spirit would ever do. I read this quote about 20 years ago or so. It's always stuck with me. Jonathan Edwards wrote this, and it's in a section of how do we know that the Spirit's working? How do we know that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is actually working? And he wrote this, if the Spirit that is at work among a people is plainly observed to work so as to convince them of Christ, it's exalting Christ, and lead them to him, lead them to Christ, to confirm their minds in the belief of the history of Christ as he appeared in the flesh, and that he is the son of God and was sent of God to save sinners, that he is the only savior and that they stand in great need of him. And if he seems to beget in them higher and more honorable thoughts of Christ than they used to have and to incline their affections more to him, it is a sure sign that it is a true and right spirit. So Christ is exalted. You love Christ more. You're humbled before him further. Again, why? Because of verse 14, the spirit, Jesus says, will testify of me. He will testify of me. Let's look at quality number seven. So much more to say in the text. We'll wrap it up here. Quality number seven. The New Testament is sufficient in its testimony. The New Testament is sufficient in its testimony. That is to say this, the New Testament lacks nothing. The New Testament lacks nothing needed for life and godliness. I want you to notice two phrases that are used, one in verse 13, one in verse 15. Two phrases, start in verse 13. The Spirit will guide you into, here's the phrase, all the truth. All the truth. And then in verse 15, all things, there's a phrase, all things that the Father has are mine. And what will the Spirit do with all of these things? He will disclose it to you. So all the truth, all things, obviously not referring to God, letting us know everything that he knows. That's impossible. But here all the truth, all things in the sense of all that the Father desires us to know. All that the Father desires us to know. All the necessary implications of gospel truth. All that is required to be believed in order to be saved from sin. All that must be applied to be sanctified into the image of Christ. We have here all the necessary revelation needed. That's what Jesus promises to give through the Spirit. This is why Revelation 22 concludes with the warning don't add to anything, do not add to anything that has been written. That's why the Apostle Paul says all scripture is inspired. 
breathed out by God, by the Spirit. Why? Here's why. So that, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for some good works. Equipped for every good work. Every good work. And again, this has been the testimony of church history. Here's the Westminster Confession. Here's how they put it. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Unto which... Nothing at any time is to be added. The Spirit-inspired scriptures are sufficient for all of life and godliness. And so put this promise then in the context of Jesus' final farewell. In the midst of his apostles, filled with sorrow, filled with fear. Jesus leaves them with this lasting promise and it's a promise for us as well. The promise is though Jesus was leaving them, the spirit would come to them and the spirit would use them to accomplish his revelatory work and through them, the spirit would give to us The Spirit would give to us spirit-breathed, harmonious, inerrant, sufficient words. This is his final farewell. This is God's love and his care for his people. I end with Luther's quote, the word of God is the greatest, most necessary, and most important thing in Christendom. Father, you have given us a tremendous gift that is supernatural from your spirit. It is also harmonious with you and your son. And Father, right now I pray that you would forgive us for taking your scriptures so lightly You would forgive us for taking them for granted, treating them as just simply any other word. Forgive us, Lord, for not obeying them, revering them as from you. Grant us repentance that we would turn from that kind of heart and that we would love your word that we long to hear it and read it and apply it and obey it. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.